Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. China has released a white paper on its actions on building a global community with a shared future. Meanwhile, it hosts candid and pragmatic talks with the European Union on economic and trade issues. American auto workers expand their strike as both Biden and Trump to join the picket line. You are listening to Bro Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. China has released a white paper on its proposals and actions on building a global community with a shared future. It's been 10 years since Chinese President Xi Jinping proposed the idea. The white paper highlighted the Belt and Road Initiative as an example, stating that China offered its plan to resolve major issues with its initiatives on global development, peace and civilization. Dai Kai has the details. The white paper comes at a time when the idea of building a global community of shared future has been around for 10 years. Over the past decade, there's been multiple progress in turning this idea into reality. China's political bureau member of the CPC Central Committee and Foreign Minister Wang Yi said the idea has gained wider international recognition. Over the past decade, with the direct planning and personal involvement of President Xi, building a community with a shared future for mankind has been turning from an idea into action and spreading wide across the world. In a transforming world, it stands for what is right, and in the face of challenges and crises, it inspires courage and resolve. The first part of the paper highlights how globalization is optimized, that allocation of resources like labor, like technology, as well as capital. Um, So uh, those resources are like turning isolated ponds and small rivers into one vast ocean where you know the market has become a world market and it says cooperation and mutual benefit are the only correct choices. The document also points out that global challenges demand global solutions. The paper argues that in the face of global crises, we must abandon uh, what they call the zero-sum game mentality and engage in global cooperation. The white paper calls on nations to come together, working hand-in-hand to collectively build a global community of shared future. That's Dai Kai reporting. So to talk more on this, let's have Dr. Yang Shujie, Chong Kong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Yao. Hi. Uh, can you elaborate on the concept of a global community of a shared future as outlined in the white paper? And how does China envision achieving this vision uh, in a world marked by diverse social systems and ideologies? The Chinese is set um, example by um, by doing a, a good uh, in a, uh, contribution to this process of uh, shared future and globalized globalized world. Uh, the the Bell and Low Initiative is a peaceful uh, you know international strategy for uh, economic development, particularly the infrastructure infrastructure development for the poor countries. <coughs> And the emerging economy along the bail and law initiative. So this is a demonstration. I mean, in a particular contrast to some of the 
economy power, particularly the superpower, such as the United States and European, and they have a tradition of you know self protection for their own interests, and if anything they do uh, to the outside world is is partly just to uh, protect their their share interest and the dominant in the global economy politics. So China itself is a poor country and have been suffering from this kind of uh, imperialism and also isolation from uh, the Western power in the past. But the economic form over the, over the last four and a half decades, China have done a great deal in terms of not only open the door for the, for the rich country, but also open the door for the poor country. And most recently, particularly the, the world financial crisis and now the Ukraine crisis, the pandemic and so on and so forth, what China is trying to do is that whatever China is uh, achieving is not just for the Chinese people, but it's aimed to also helping you know, the poor developing countries so that uh, the geopolitical structure that has been set by the United States and the Western Airlines uh, would be broken so that there would be some sort of common prosperity uh, among all the people, whether they are in the industrialized Western economy or whether they are in the poor African, uh, you know, Belarus, Initiative, Latin America, South Asia, Southeast Asia, and so on. So every country should have the equal opportunity uh, to benefit from the globalization process. And this is the white paper called the shared future. So what China is doing is like, yes, we are doing our homework uh, well, and this homework could be copied and also uh, promoted in other parts of the world so that the, the human being, whether they uh, you know, live in China or elsewhere, they should have equal opportunity uh, to uh, become prosperous uh, rather than being isolated. And this is uh, the purpose of China is promoting. Speaking of benefiting from globalization, the white paper says that globalization is a reality and a way of life. How do you understand this proposition? How does China view its role in a globalized world? Yeah, globalization is reality, but uh, people may interpret globalization in different way. In some countries, I say, some countries, they pay more attention to their own interests. Uh, globalization is a reality, but it also divides the world. Now, the Chinese propose the reality of globalization is not just for the, the benefit of some few rich countries and uh, in a uh, powerful country, but it is a reality for all the people, for any country, who would have the uh, similar situation, uh, who have an opportunity to, to become prosperous. And this is uh, the different interpretation of China as globalization as a reality uh, in this uh, white paper. It is, it is different uh, from the traditional globalization uh, where the world is divided into the rich and the poor. As you mentioned earlier, the white paper also critics the notion of uh, universal values defined by a handful of Western countries. Can you provide examples of how China's vision for a shared future differs from this Western perspective and why it believes this approach is more inclusive? Yeah, I, I think, the, uh, as I just mentioned, uh, it, some countries, some powerful countries, especially the uh, the, the imperialist, um, you, you know, superpower like the United States, 
and uh, the Western Airlines. And their their universal value is actually their own perspective. Is that they, if you add at the Washington uh, free market and also you know the Western style democracy, uh, one one pre, one party voting against the other party uh, that way, and also uh, you know the the wealth is commanded by a handful of rich uh, you know capitalists. And then they use this, um, you know, wealth to conquer the rest of the world. And this is the kind of interpretation of the universe uh, value defined by the United States and uh, and the and the Western uh, allies. Now, what China is doing are uh, different. The China say, okay, we should actually respect the the, the value and and the, uh, you know the culture, the ideology, the political system. Of different countries, because different countries have different perspectives, they have different history, they have different uh, resources, endowment, and they also have different political system. Uh, the Chinese, they were suggested, they would not, you know, just like define the universal value in a very, uh, you know, narrow way, which benefits just a handful of people mm. and exclude the rest of the world. China, what China is trying to do is try to respect. All kinds of valuing ideology in, in terms of in terms of religion, political system, and and the culture and how people behave. So mm-hmm. only if you respect other people the value, then you can gain more and more trust in the future. So what China is doing is trying to promote this kinds of uh, you know diversify you know ideology and culture so that all the country will be put in an equal footing. Uh, you know, situation with a uh, free competition, free market, but they respect their own uh, society. Dr. Yao, democracy is another focus in the white paper. The paper discusses democracy as a solution to real problems. Could you explain how China perceives democracy in the context of global governance and international relations, especially considering the diversity of political systems worldwide? Yeah, the Chinese interpret the, the the term democracy is very different from the <coughs> Western terms of democracy. Although the Western terms of democracy is uh, packaged in a way that is probably the the best in the world, but in reality, as I say, it's just one a group of people voting against a group of other people, and in reality, uh, there is a, a, you know some sort of uh, externally you have this imperial. Action and internally you have this uh, racial inequality and so on and poverty even in the United States. But in China, I think the democracy is rooted uh, with the people, for the people, by the people, uh, which is the most important. I mean, why is for the people and that will for the all the future of uh, people for their better life? Uh, for example, uh, China has been campaigning for the anti-poverty. Uh, and absolute poverty have been eradicated. Even China's per capita income is only uh, just above ten thousand uh, US dollars. The absolute poverty have been resolved. And in the future, uh, you know, relative poverty would also be reduced, uh, like through uh, you know the regeneration of the countryside, and also creating jobs for for all the people, uh, reduce the unemployment rate, and creating more jobs so that people have a better uh, you know, you know, job security and also income to support their 
uh, in a daily life and also improve their uh, living standards. Uh, of course, I mean, China is a big country. We have 1.4 people that diversify geo, geo, you know, economy uh, differences between the different provinces and different layers of people. So the task to have common prosperity uh, is very difficult one. Uh, but by the way, you know, the party, the state, they, in their official document and also in policy and so on and so forth, uh, they, the, the center, the focus is that we have to have the, the, the economic growth, have to uh, provide a better uh, working environment, better living environment, and better biological environment for all the people to have a better life. Dr. Yao, I think one of the ultimate goal, as the proposal suggested, is to achieve equity and justice. And this is also highlighted in the white paper. Can you provide concrete examples of actions or initiatives that China is undertaking to promote uh, such values on a global scale? Yeah, domestically, China have done a great deal, as just mentioned, in terms of the anti-poverty campaign. But internationally, I think the bail and law initiative is uh, it's very inclusive in a way. It doesn't actually discriminate any country. Uh, you know, any country, particularly in the emerging and developing world, if they want to the, join the bail and law initiative, they are fully welcome. And there will be some sort of facilitation in terms of infrastructure development, in terms of economic development, and also job creation technological transfer uh, at a reasonable uh, a, you know, cost, cost level uh, and um, accessibility to, to education, to technology that have been uh, you know, used by the Chinese company and so on and so forth. And also falling aid. China has provided lots of falling aid. And this falling aid uh, is different from the traditional Western economic falling uh, Chinese foreign way is aiming at, at investing in the education in terms of uh, build the roads and also build the factories, creating jobs. Uh, most Western aid, they, although they play some role in terms of reducing poverty, but much of the money has been used for policy advice. And much of the policy the advice actually failed to achieve the economic growth uh, objective. Uh, Chinese doesn't actually give much economic advice to the local people who receive Chinese foreign aid. What they do is to communicate with the foreign authority of what kind of project will benefit most for the economy and, and job. For example, that the railway, railway construction system in East Africa, and nowadays, you, you know, the high-speed train in Indonesia, all these are very concrete examples of how Chinese technology, capital, and, and also uh, you, you know, personnel uh, transfer into a developing country which desperately need these kinds of facilities. And this is a, a way of common uh, prosperity, equality, and inclusiveness in terms of economic development. Thanks, Dr. Yao, for providing valuable insights into the white paper and China's vision for a global community of a shared future. That's Dr. Yao Shujie, Chonghong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. 
China says it hopes the European Union will lift restrictions on Chinese high-tech products. This comes as Chinese Vice Premier He Lifeng and EU Trade Commissioner Valdis Dombrovskis co-chaired a high-level economic and trade dialogue between the two sides. The two officials also agreed to maintain communication. Both parties promise to maintain mutual openness and provide a fair and enabling business environment for enterprises from each other. Uh, we therefore agreed to resume regular exchanges to discuss macroeconomic issues, uh, reigniting the economic and financial dialogue and macroeconomic dialogue. China's vice premier also said the country is ready to advance its comprehensive strategic partnership with the European Union. For more on this, joining us on the line is Liu Baocheng, associate professor at the Business School of the University of International Business and Economics. Thanks for joining us, Professor Liu. Hi, thank you. The Secretary General of the European Union Chamber of Commerce in China said the dialogue was longer than expected and the two sides held in-depth dialogue with broad-ranging topics. What implications can be drawn from this extended duration and this comprehensive nature of the discussions between the two sides? I think it's a very productive and in-depth dialogue uh, in which a number of topics have been touched upon in an open and frank manner. And uh, that really uh, includes uh, trade and investment issues, uh, macroeconomic issues on both sides, and also the global issues. And there are also substantial uh, progress that has been made in terms of the information exchange, uh, in terms of the uh, uh, a joint recognition of uh, geographical the uh, indications for uh, products on both sides and also the ease of uh, uh, baby formulas uh, uh, for uh, from the China side. And uh, uh, now I think there's uh, uh, reassurance that uh, uh, neither side really wanted to decouple, but rather uh, is there to reshape the global supply chain. Uh, of course, there are also uh, some uh, differences, uh, uh, for example, in terms of the level playing fields for market actors, uh, market access issues, the IP protection issues. But uh, uh, overall, I, I feel that uh, this is uh, uh, really making a lot more progress by building a better understanding and also, more importantly, it's really specific initiative and actions that are being taken, and this is really greatly welcomed. Professor, speaking of different stands, both China and the EU have high expectations for this high-level economic and trade dialogue. What are their respective demands? Were those concerns of both sides sufficiently addressed during the talks? Well, both sides recognize the level of interdependence between uh, EU and China uh, is so high that uh, no one uh, political maneuverability can really change the entire picture. Uh, as a matter of fact, over the last year, there has been quite a surge, uh, uh, up to 23% of the uh, bilateral trade. And so, uh, therefore, the specific concern would be uh, the uh, to push China for uh, a bigger market access. Uh, as a matter of fact, it is very much in line with what China really wants because uh, President Xi emphasized on the systematic opening of uh, China and also the uh, continued reform on the way. 
So uh, this is pretty much uh, in uh, incompatibility with uh, what Europeans want. And uh, on the other hand, uh, China wants the EU to uh, reduce the protectionist policies and so that uh, the Chinese high-tech industries and also the uh, uh, particularly uh, in terms of the clean energy vehicles can really penetrate in the uh, EU market so that they won't really be uh, distorted uh, in the uh, market rationale. So uh, these are really uh, some of the issues that are outstanding, but I do see that uh, there is uh, uh, a very fundamental rationality uh, mm-hmm. for both sides to work out on those differences so that uh, you know, both the business community and consumers can really benefit. Professor, let's delve further into their concerns here. Before the talk, China said it's highly concerned with the use launch of an anti-subsidy investigation into China's electric vehicles. Could you elaborate on China's stance and concerns regarding this issue? Well, EU has uh, issued their uh, foreign subsidy regulation, and they are really targeting to any third country. However, uh, because of the aggressive exports from China and China, uh, the uh, without much of the uh, comprehension, the uh, fall victim to such sort of policy, and uh, uh, the the fact that the EU, uh, the government by themselves, launched the anti-subsidy uh, uh, probe into the uh, export of the Chinese e vehicles instead of the competitors shows that uh, uh, this is really embroiled uh, in some of the uh, political considerations despite of their assurance that uh, they are not really uh, decoupling uh, with China. And uh, uh, right now, uh, I do not think there really stands much of the uh, chance for the EU really to have substantial penalty over the Chinese exports because uh, in uh, in the first place, the uh, much of the uh, exports of those e-vehicles are really funded by many of the European companies. And the other is that they have to eventually measure how it's going to uh, injure the uh, competition, uh, which I do not think is uh, uh, really material or substantial. And lastly, they have to uh, measure... The, whether it really does serve the community of business and consumers' interest. So right now, EU is in a high level of uh, uh, pressure because of the uh, Ukraine crisis, and they are short of the energy supply, and there are so much resolve for the uh, green energy trans- uh, transformation. And China's exports of those green energies, be it solar panels, be it uh, the new uh, energy vehicles, they really come to the aid uh, rather than really damaging the uh, their economy or uh, the consumer interests. Professor, briefly, the EU has expressed concerns about the business environment in China. Actually, both sides talked about fair competition in each market. How would you assess their concerns? Do you think they are on the same page in, in understanding of the concept fair competition? Well, uh, we're not on the same page yet, but uh, we uh, more or less are uh, on the same direction uh, because uh, China's uh, reform over the past 45 years has been very gradual, and China has to make its own assessment of the industrial competition so that uh, 
some of the rising industries and also some of the infant industries can be fairly protected. But on the other hand, uh, the EU is budging with China to further opening its market and more importantly to provide more of the transparency and uh, reciprocity uh, so that uh, you know both sides can really uh, see uh, more predictability in the future of doing business. So we are in the same direction, but uh, uh, the uh, gradual process uh, is driving the EU out of patience. Uh, but uh, this is really the reality that both sides have to face, I think, well, with a better dialogue. And uh, some progress can really be made to uh, really uh, to push forward. Thanks, Professor. That's Professor Liu Baocheng at the Business School of University of International Business and Economics. This is Real Today. We'll be back. Welcome back to World Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. Millions of U.S. government employees are bracing for their pay to stop at the end of the month as the government shutdown looms. House Republicans are still unable to reach a compromise over a new budget. Owen Faircloud explains. We're making an order consideration of four bills. Working through the weekend to try to pull the U.S. government back from the precipice. Republicans who control the House of Representatives racing against time to try to introduce legislation aimed at keeping critical government agencies funded as a shutdown looms. Kevin McCarthy, the leading Republican in Congress, is under pressure to stop a shutdown by getting rebellious hardline Republicans determined to cut spending on side. We continue to talk. Look, I thought we had a really good conference the night before. I thought we had moved two people, but we moved two people the other way too. So it's a, it's a yin and a yang. And it's deja vu. The same Republican divisions led to the U.S. almost defaulting on its debts in June before Congress voted to raise spending limits and keep the government running through the summer. President Biden is urging his opponents to set aside their internal divisions that have triggered previous government shutdowns. But that faction of ultra-conservative Republicans are opposing a short-term funding measure known as a continuing resolution. That just leads to more of the same. It's actually precisely the reason that we are $33 trillion in debt facing $2 trillion annual deficits. We cannot go on as a country that spending $7 trillion and bringing in $5 trillion. So I hope we could get bipartisan agreement to reduce spending. If lawmakers are unable to agree on a continuing resolution, the federal government risks shutting down at midnight on September the 30th. That's Owen Faircloud with a report on difficulties to reach an agreement to keep the U.S. government running. For more on this, my colleague Zhang Yang spoke with Einar Tengen, senior fellow at the Taihe Institute. Let's have a so, listen. So, Einar, the deeply divided House and Republicans, they're uh, scrambling for a path forward to avert a government shutdown. So what's happening over there? Okay, well, there's actually not a scramble going on. What you have is very hardened positions. You have um, the Speaker of the House, uh, McCarthy, who last spring hammered out a deal with the Biden administration. Now, the Freedom Caucus, this is a small minority of Republicans, very, very fiscally conservative uh, and socially conservative, have said that they refuse to sign on to any 
uh, stopgap measure, let alone a final measure, uh, budget measure, until they get what they want, which centers around um, no uh, aid for uh, less aid for climate change, um, more stricter abortion issues, and uh, also rebuilding the border wall. And then a number of them have concerns about funding Ukraine. Uh, very hard line. They say they won't even consider uh, voting for it, which puts McCarthy in a very interesting political position. He could get votes from the Democratic side, but if he does that, it's probable that he will face a challenge to his uh, leadership. So it pits his personal desire to stay in charge versus the ideological uh, leanings of a small minority of his party. Mm. And what will happen if the government shuts down there? Well, it's pretty drastic. Uh, basically, Congress continues to get paid, but very few other people, uh, only essential uh, services such as the military and um, you know air traffic control. But for instance, um, almost 90% of the White House staff could be furloughed. All the um, people who work for Congress would also not get paid. Uh, and it would go across the board. I mean, there'd be 7 million mothers who would stop receiving aid uh, who, um, who are on impoverished. There are 10,000 children who would not be eligible to go to their Head Start school programs. And this goes across the board. And then there are the financial implications. Mm. If, in fact, this does happen, you could see the credit agencies downgrading. Now, remember, there was a big fuss when Fitch, grounded, um, when Fitch uh, downgraded the U.S. debt. That's one thing. There are three major credit agencies. If for any reason, another one or both downgraded the U.S. debt, it would trigger a number of things. There are a lot of clauses in contracts, uh, financial ones, that say that you have to have a uh, at least two major agencies giving you a triple A rating in order for that to be considered um, uh, a safe uh, investment uh, for the purposes of whatever they're doing. Uh, if they do that, then there would have to be a shift in those bonds, uh, and it could have um, massive implications. There are other uh, issues also that go along with that. Mm -hmm. And where does the U.S. national debt stand today? And what do you think are the main factors or reasons of this problem? Well, it's 33 trillion and counting uh, since you know this. Uh, the ceiling was lifted, and this is the debt ceiling. This is the ability of the government to print money. Um, was lifted. Uh, it's gone up by 1.6 trillion dollars uh, in the first half of this year. It is expected to go up even further by the end of the year. Um, and the reason is that um, the U.S. has not lived within its means uh, since, um, you know, 2000, uh, early 2000 during the Clinton uh, campaign, Clinton um, uh, presidency. Uh, there was a very brief point at which the U.S. actually ran a surplus. Uh, but even prior to that, it was very, very rare. In fact, it didn't happen. So the U.S. lives beyond its means. Uh, they say this is necessary to uh, have the dollar as a uh, you know international instrument. Actually, it's just overspending. And, um, and on top of that, of course, there has been the extraordinary borrowing for wars, the pandemic, etc., so the U.S. is literally, if you were, it was not the U.S., you would say it was a Ponzi scheme. They are literally borrowing money. 
to pay the interest on money that they've already borrowed, and on top of that, borrowing more. Mm. And so, what are the potential consequences of the this time's government、uh, if shutdown really happens, and what impact would this have on the financial markets and the U.S. economy? Well, there, as I was saying earlier on, there are all sorts of consequences to the average American in terms of the services、uh, that they wouldn't be eligible for. The, of course, the the poor. Uh, those who are at most at risk in society are going to suffer the most.、Um, of course, they're the ones who can least afford to do so. And then you get into the international financial markets, and this is another blow to、uh, the U.S. dollar. People's confidence in it—that、uh, the ability of the U.S. to run、uh, the largest economy in the world is in doubt—will further、uh, push nations to hedge. They're not going to replace the U.S. dollar. It's not possible in a short period of time, but they will continue to hedge and move assets away from、uh, U.S. Treasuries and areas like that as they try to figure out if the U.S. government can act responsibly or if it's just simply deadlocked ideologically. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, the Moody said the U.S. credit rating could be under pressure if the government shuts down, and the shutdown would be, you know, credit negative for the U.S. sovereign. And since the beginning of this year, the de-dollarization has gained momentum, with countries adopting various measures to ditch the U.S. currency. So, how do you see this trend? Well, it's continued, and regardless of whether this is、um, the situation is resolved, it brings into question, as I was saying before, the ability of the U.S. government to handle its economic affairs.、Um, you, you know, this. Constantly going from crisis to crisis, instead of planning for the next、uh, year, two years, five years, ten, fifteen years, there seems to be this up and down seesaw movement where one party does one thing, which is undone by the other party once they get in power.、Uh, this can, will continue to shake markets. Now, if there's a prolonged period where the government, U.S. government, is not able to come to resolution on the budget, it's not just the economic.、Uh, Domestic affairs that are going to suffer internationally, you're going to see people continue to hedge,、uh, countries continue to hedge,、um, and you know it'll solidify their plans、uh, to find a way of, to have alternatives to the U.S. dollar. This affects the ability of the U.S. to pay、uh, with cheap funds its debt, the 33 trillion dollars that we're taking,、uh, that we were talking about earlier, which continues to grow. Uh, that could lead to a、um, kind of a downward spiral in crisis, where people demand more money because of the perceived risk of holding U.S. bonds. That would increase the uh, uh, the amount of money that has to be paid, which is already up substantially because of these higher rates by the Fed,、uh, putting more pressure on a budget where, you know, the Freedom Caucus continues to want to cut into the budget. Uh, without any idea of where those cuts are going to go f- come from, except social programs. That was Einar Tengen, senior fellow at the Taihe Institute. 
American UAW United Auto Workers National Strike against the Detroit's Big Three automakers enters its second week and is expected to garner more attention with visits from President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump this week. The UAW expanded its strike due to stalled negotiations with General Motors and Stellantis, while talks with Ford showed promise. The union's demands include a 36% wage increase, job security, and other benefits. American media analysts believe multiple factors such as the labor strike, the risk of a government shutdown, and inflation will cast a shadow over economic growth in the United States in the fourth quarter. So for more information regarding the strike and its implications for the U.S. economy and the auto industry, let's bring in Dr. Scott Lucas, Professor of American Studies and International Politics at University of Birmingham. Thanks for joining us, Professor. Thank you for having me here. Uh, Professor, the UAW union has expanded its strike against the big three automakers. What are the factors that prompted this strike in the first place and is the further expansion today? Well, I think there have been a couple of long-term trends uh, mm-hmm. behind the immediate strike. The first long-term trend is that after being in an extremely difficult position about 15 years ago, uh, U.S. automakers have not only recovered, uh, they actually have had record profits um, over that period. And workers would like to see a share of those profits. They argue that they you know, tightened their belts um, to make sure the auto firm stayed afloat during a difficult period. So now they should receive benefits as the auto uh, companies are doing better. And I think the second is the broader uh, trend, which we also see in countries like China, which is the emphasis on moving to electric vehicles. Uh, You know, electric vehicles require quite a bit of investment, but they also have a lot of potential in terms of the rewards, the financial rewards for companies that successfully make that shift. And the auto workers are saying, well, if you want us to be part of that shift, if you want us to help you make that transition uh, to electric vehicles and a green economy, again, we need to receive the benefits from being part of this. This needs to be a cooperative effort and not one where we're left behind. Uh, the inflation factor also mentioned by many, uh, they believe this strike influenced by the rising cost of living in the United States. How do you view the recent pressure on American society from rising prices? Well, in, in fact, you know, the U.S. is doing quite well over the past year regarding the inflation rate. I mean, inflation was running at about eight and a half to nine percent last year. Uh, it's gone down almost every month since then, and it was three point seven percent. Uh, in August. So the U.S. is actually doing better than than most global economies uh, in terms of handling inflation. So I don't think that's the immediate issue with this strike. I do think there's a wider issue on the strike, which is the question of pension funds. And again, as with many countries around the world, there's been a shift away from fairly, you know, well-endowed pension funds and, you know, where you were assured of quite good benefits when you retire to pension funds that are not as lucrative. And I think the auto workers are saying, look, we really would like to go to the older system um, of uh, tying the benefits of pensions to the benchmark that we had 10, 15 years ago. I think it probably, if we were to forecast this, I think the workers will get a significant wage increase Mm. over the next four years. I think it'll be more difficult for them to get concessions over the pensions. 
Put aside UAW's demands, what challenges do the U.S. automakers face in meeting the UAW's demands, especially in the context of high labor costs and the ongoing transition to the electric vehicles? No, I, I, I mean, I think you actually just set it out in the question. And I think that is that this is probably the most significant shift uh, for automakers um, in well over a generation. Probably the most significant shift for automakers since the uh, the, the petrol crisis, the, uh, the rise in gas prices in the 1970s. And that is they're being asked to come up with a, a significantly different type of car than one that my parents would be used to or their parents before them. And that requires a different type of production line. It requires a lot of work in terms of uh, AI, in terms of technological shifts in the 21st century, and you need to incorporate those. Uh, the companies that can incorporate those, that do them effectively uh, with their workforce, they're going to benefit. They're going to benefit not only from the U.S. market, but from the global market. Those that don't make that transition, that don't bring in that new technology, that don't bring in computerization, uh, and that do not work with their workforces you know, in a harmonious relationship, they're going to struggle. Professor reports recently highlighted U.S. President Joe Biden's visit to the striking UAW workers in Michigan. Is it a common practice for a sitting president to visit active picket lines? What message is President Biden trying to convey here? This actually has not been done in recent memory because probably, you know, my experience for most of my life is that presidents have been hesitant to side too closely with the unions because they would fear that the American media um, or elements of the American media and also from the American public would associate this with, you know, tying themselves to, to movements that were going to bash the companies, that were going to bash the American economic system. Mm-hmm. But I think you've seen a shift amongst the American public. Support for unions is now at, at its highest point in the last 25 years. And for the Democratic Party, which has lost a lot of union voters to the Republicans uh, mm-hmm. since the 1980s. They want to recapture those voters. So the Democrats, I think, are reaching out, but not just the Democrats. Republicans would like to hold on to those union voters. So you're seeing some Republicans, not all Republicans, but some Republicans who are actually embracing the unions in this strike and saying, no, they, they actually have a cause. We should support their right to strike. So I think for both political parties, there's sort of a shift not only in terms of their immediate position on the auto strike, but on their relationship with unions that we'll see in the next presidential election and probably in several elections beyond that. Speaking of that, former President Donald Trump is also expected to visit Michigan. How is this visiting aligning with his political agenda? What impact might his involvement have on the ongoing labor strike and the broader political landscape in the United States? Trump just wants you to talk about him. He is going to visit Michigan, um, not as much to really show, you know, that embrace the unions, although I think he'll claim that he supports the auto workers. He's doing it because there is a Republican presidential debate that night. Now, he is refusing to participate in those debates, and he's hoping that the media will not talk about the other candidates, seven candidates who will be there. They'll talk only about him. So it's just part of the Trump circus trying to create a bit of spectacle. Um, It's not nearly, I think, a serious intervention um, in this auto strike in the same way that Biden's visit will be.
Considering the complex interplay between labor negotiations, industry transition concerns, and political maneuvering, what are the potential outcomes and implications for both the auto industry and the U.S. workforce in the near and long term? Well, it, it depends on how long this strike goes in terms of its effects. I think if you have a resolution which occurs in the next few weeks, and I think it will occur, then I think we're, we're back to the position that you and I talked about, which is these companies facing the challenge of producing new lines of autos, new lines of vehicles, uh, which are part of a 21st century economy, which are part of a green economy. And again, one that has been promoted by the Biden administration, I think quite successfully. I think, however, if this the strikes are protracted, if they go on for months, for example, then they will cripple the auto industry. Uh, they'll cripple the auto industry, not only in terms of not making cars for, again, the American market, but they will lose competitive edge versus those companies in other countries, whether we're talking about Europe, whether we're talking about Asia, who actually can come out more quickly and more effectively in the shift to electric vehicles and the newer type of cars and trucks that we're looking at. So it's, you know, a, a quick strike. If we're not talking about the strike a month from now, you and I, it's come, it's gone. If you and I are still talking about this by the end of the year, then it's got quite serious effects for the American industry and also for the American economy as a whole. Okay, thanks, Dr. Lucas. That's Dr. Scott Lucas, Professor of American Studies and International Politics at University of Birmingham. You are listening to Row Today. Stay with us. Welcome back to Road Today. The United States has officially recognized the Cook Islands and Niue as sovereign and independent states. This comes as U.S. President Joe Biden hosted the second U.S. Pacific Island Forum Summit. During the summit, Biden pledged to work with Congress to provide 200 million more U.S. dollars in funding for the region on pressing issues like climate change, maritime security, and protecting the region from overfishing. At last year's summit, Biden added $810 million U.S. million in aid for Pacific Island nations over the next decade, but it has not yet been approved by Congress. Will America live up to its promises? Will the new aid become another blank check? To delve into this and more, joining us on the line is Professor Chen Hong, Executive Director of the Asian Pacific Studies Center at East China Normal University. Uh, Professor, Western media believe that the summit is part of a U.S. charm offensive to block further Chinese inroads into a strategic region that Washington has long considered its own backyard. What's your thoughts on such a narrative? What do you make of Washington's explicit aim to the region? Yes, I agree it is a part of an offensive with China as the uh, target, but I don't think there's any charm in it. As we know, for both summits, this one and the one last year, the Biden administration simply summons the uh, leaders of the 18 you know, Pacific countries and areas to uh, Washington. If the uh, United States really respects the uh, Pacific countries, why doesn't Biden himself travel to the uh, Pacific island countries? All right, Biden's busy, Biden has more important things to do, but aren't the uh, Pacific you know, island country leaders busy with important agendas too? So in essence, there's a condescending attitude and arrogance with which the Biden administration adopting, you know, dealing with the Pacific Island countries. As a matter of fact, Washington has been, you know, promoting 
and implementing the so-called you know, Indo-Pacific strategy with the uh, explicit purpose to block, to sabotage you know, China's development and China's friendly cooperation with other countries, in this case, of course, the uh, Pacific Island countries. China's successful cooperation with the uh, island countries somehow has caused strategic anxiety for Washington, which reacted with uh, desperate determination to compete or rival with China. So it is actually rather you know, immature and childish, isn't it? But the United States has been promising you know, economic aid, opening or reopening embassies, which it had closed decades ago, and constantly slandering China and China's cooperation with the island countries. The ultimate aim is to hold on to and consolidate its uh, grip on this region with its hegemonic agenda. Uh, speaking of smearing campaign against China, last year Biden's administration pledged to help islanders fend off China's mm. quote unquote economic coercion. How do you read such an allegation? How did the United States arrive at this conclusion? Well, that is the most absurd allegation, you know, about China. It is groundless, you know, with no evidence at all. Why should China coerce the Pacific Island countries? China and the uh, Pacific Island countries have been carrying out this highly successful cooperation in the recent decades with concrete and fruitful, you know, outcomes beneficial to both sides. China's relationship with the Pacific Island countries is based on the principle of the four, you know, four uh, respects. You know, China fully respects the sovereignty and independence of uh, Pacific Island countries, fully respects their will, fully respects their cultural traditions, and fully respects their effort to seek strength through unity. And the Pacific Island countries and their peoples have been close partners with China. So this brazen, shameless lie about China's so-called coercion in the Pacific Island countries becomes so laughable. It shows the United States is really at its wit's end to you know, keep on this uh, you know, smear campaign against China. Professor, the United States has made substantial aid promises, as we talked about earlier. Mm. Like this year, another 200 million U.S. dollar in funding. Last year's summit, 810 million. Yet these promises have not materialized, mm. and the 200 million more might face the same fate. What are the reasons behind these unfulfilled pledges, and what does this mean for the region? Yes, last year's promise of... Uh uh, economic aid of 810 million U.S. dollars is still in the air, you know, until this day, as you said, the uh, Congress, the, U- the U.S. Congress, still has not given it the uh, go-ahead approval. And now Biden is promising to write off another check of $200 million. The purpose is apparently to uh, entice the island countries with promises of, uh, you know, the so-called economic aid. Washington, is, you know, is under the illusion that the island countries can be bribed with uh, such aid. But as everyone knows, you know, you can never buy friendship, especially when you have, you know, vested interests and ulterior motives. As a matter of fact, whether it is 810 million or 200 million, firstly, the aid has been announced to be given out in several stages. Secondly, there are 18 countries and and, and areas, and the money will have to be distributed among all those countries and, and, and areas. So at the end of the day, how much real money will end up in each country is still a guessing game. Another fact is that a huge proportion of Western aid to the Pacific countries has been in the form of the so-called systemic build-up and capacity building. That is to say, a lot of the aid money is used to support the build-up of political systems in the island countries. In other words, the transplantation or imposition of Western you know, political system of, of governance onto those uh, mm-hmm. countries. 
As for their capacity building, it's simply a euphemism for their process to train or brainwash the countries, the public servants, NGOs, the, you know, the media. If the United States is really serious about helping their Pacific Island countries, it should do more substantive and meaningful things instead of paying you know, lip service only. Uh, Professor, briefly, we've witnessed the increasing collaboration between China and the region. How does this differ from the U.S. approach? Yeah, I think the most salient point about China's collaboration is, of course, mutual respect, which leads to you know, mutual understanding and mutual trust, which ultimately results in mutual benefits. So this mutual benefit is really important because both China and the, the Pacific countries benefit from this cooperation because China's aid programs inject dynamism into the, the country's economy, infrastructure, and people's education and health levels, which in turn you know, benefits China's trade and investment activities. So this beneficial, you know, mutually beneficial you know, you know, process is sustainable. It can really you know, provide a sustainable you know, you know, your pathway towards more and better you know, cooperation between China and the Pacific Island country. Thanks, Professor. Appreciate your time and analysis. That's Professor Chen Hong, Executive Director of the Asian Pacific Studies Center at East China Normal University. That's all the time for this edition of World Today. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.